Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review the 2016 uh, war epic, The Promise. Or Andy and Stephanie sit on a couch and cry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is easily, without a doubt, the heaviest movie we have watched for this show. Yeah. And also one of the best. Like, I think there's this kind of preconceived notion that cult movies are always, like, a little bit bad in some way or another. And a lot of them are because they were cheesy or they were made in the 80s before, like, movie making was really the level it was today. So looking back at it is hard. But, like, this was made in 2016. It is beautiful, and it is so heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. It has a star-studded cast. It is we're, This is a movie that is cult for a very different reason than most movies on our list, and I think we're going to talk at length about why that is. But before that, for anyone who uh, has not seen the movie, has not seen this hidden gem... The Promise is uh, directed by Terry George and is a film about the Armenian genocide, which is the mass disruption and eradication of the Armenian people at the end of the 19th century by the Ottoman Empire. We see the events of the genocide play out in real time through the eyes of Armenians Michael Bogosian, Anna Kasarian, and American reporter Chris Myers, whose lives are violently and tragically altered by the events. Events which, to this day, in real world, uh, the Turkish government has not recognized, and America did not recognize as actually happening until 2019. Until 2019, which is now three years ago. Yep. (laughs) Am I doing that math properly? Yes, I am. That's sad and depressing. That's sad and depressing. I've talked about the Armenian genocide um, on my other podcast, Love Hate Relationship, and gone into a little more depth on that. But like a, a thing that a lot of historians have commented on is this was not necessarily a genocide done to other countries in the same way that the Holocaust, mm-hmm. to use an example, was. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's a lot easier for other countries that were wholly uninvolved to kind of turn a blind eye. Mm-hmm. That and some really kind of gross American dependency on Turkish air bases in the Middle East. But this isn't a politics show. This is a, <laughs> a cool movie show that is going to get very political this episode. This is your warning. <laughs> Well, and I think that's why we have the character of Chris Myers as played by Christian Bale, because there's the character is entirely fictional. Chris Myers did not exist, but the story writers wanted to come across the concept of like, it was incredibly important to have war reporters in this time because 
without them, there would not be awareness of the Armenian genocide. And Christian Bale's character throughout the movie is consistently privileged, yes, in that he is not Armenian, but is desperately fighting for the justice of the Armenian people. Right. Uses that privilege as an American citizen to whistleblow as loudly and as possibly as he can. Correct. And I think it is, yeah, it is a very commendable thing. And I I kind of understand what Terry George was doing by making a composite character trying to just get this point across. This is a film that I think at the end of the day is about get the point across, get this message out in bright blinking letters because it's such a overlooked and controversially covered up event. Yeah. I mean, the fact that I had to listen to my husband's podcast to learn about a large historical event just because I happened to be like, oh yeah, let me listen to this episode. I don't remember what else you guys covered on this episode because I just sat there in utter horror that I, a 30 something year old woman had never fucking heard of this before. Yeah. And I'll be honest. The only reason it showed up on my radar and showed up on my other podcast is because I heard about it in a completely other podcast. Behind the Bastards, I'm assuming. Behind the Bastards. (laughs) It was not Behind the Bastards. It was actually um, the war movie podcast that Um, I I used to love. And then tragically, Bean Dad was a part of that podcast. And now it's no longer a thing. Fucking Bean Dad. Ruining everything, (laughs) including beans. (laughs) This show brought to you by Carl's Jr.'s new black bean burger. Beans. It's what's for dinner. I would try a Carl's Jr. veggie patty. I would be very trepidatious about the sauce. So, as someone who cooks a lot of vegetarian food, sauce is fine. You just have to limit how much you put on it, dependent on how finely the burger is bonded. Okay. Because it's not meat. It's not held together by fat. So, if you're holding it together with egg and breadcrumbs... You have to be really careful about sauce distribution. And that's the end of our cooking segment on <laughs> cult fiction. I'm here for the cooking segment. <laughs> this is a strange choice to break out that segment, but I'm not mad about it. Listen, we're going to talk about the Armenian genocide. We need a slight sense of levity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, if it's not obvious, if you haven't watched this movie by now and this episode like makes you want to, just go into it with eyes fully open. This is a movie about war crimes and human atrocities. And I think we were even like kind of making a drinking game out of take a sip every time there's a human atrocity on screen. And it's not that we want to make light of this really tragic thing that happened. It's more sitting and watching this movie is incredibly difficult. I cried. I'm pretty sure you did. I got definitely uh, choked up a few times. Because I think one of the things I caught myself from my very privileged, safe place of, you know, I am a consumer of media, I got caught up in, oh, the shot is really good. Oh, this premise, the way the pacing is reminds me of Titanic. Okay, the use of color and scenery to set tone reminds me of Love in the Time of Cholera. And then I remembered this actually happened and and Titanic actually happened. The cholera outbreak actually happened. 
But one of those things is not like the other in which the Armenian genocide was an act of entire terror and violence acted against a a human race of people by another human set of people. Right. I mean, basically, it it can't be overstated enough we are you know in the this movie is all about and and so this episode is core at the core of this episode it is about discussing the attempted extermination of a culture of a people and i think that is such a huge thing that like we're trying to walk the fine line between education and entertainment and that's why you know we might go into some little more light-hearted bits than Otherwise, maybe. These Germans want your sultan to declare a holy war. Um, But actually, speaking of all this, I I do want to take a moment at the top before really discussing the movie as it was. I want to discuss a couple of things that happened to this movie. Okay. Um, The first being, and I think I mentioned this when we last talked about it, this movie had a, like, stealth hijacking... Uh-huh. Of its critical... Acclaim? Acclaim, yeah, exactly. It is widely believed that the the, the country of Turkey um, made a actual direct attack on this film. And, and what a lot of people point to is this movie had 50,000 one-star reviews three days after premiering at the Toronto Film Festival. Not after wide release... After it was first shown for the first time ever, three days later, there was this you know massive wave of negativity towards the project. And I don't know about the Toronto Film Festival at like numbers, but a thousand one-star reviews. Okay, so it's a film festival, so you probably have X number of guests. Of those X number of guests who have seen it. For all of them to think it's bad enough to give a one-star review rating is real sketch. Right. It's just, it, it's an impossibility. I've, I've never even heard of, like, films getting a critical score after being premiered at a film festival. Maybe that's a thing, but I've never heard about it. And just the idea that, like, 50,000 people would say this is one of the worst movies ever made. It, it, it's impossible. And a lot of the IP addresses came from that part of the world. And a lot of the like usernames, because you got to go on IMDb and make a username, were very clearly like bought auto-generated things. So like the running theory is like just a a boardroom of Turkish hackers or something just completely spammed this movie to try and drive it into the ground. At the same time, Turkey heavily financed another film that came out six months prior called The Ottoman Lieutenant. It was released six months prior on purpose. And in The Ottoman Lieutenant, we're we're not going to watch it. I don't think we need to talk about it other than to say I have heard from other sources. The Armenian genocide is depicted, but it is put through a lens of yeah, they kind of brought it on themselves. Yeah, they kind of deserved it because they were awful, horrid people. Uh, what? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's this thing of like, yeah, we moved people and yeah, there was a lot of killings, but like they were traitors. They were trying to collaborate with Russia to overthrow the Ottoman Empire in pre-World War One. 
we we could talk at length <laughs> about the yeah you guys don't see stephanie just like getting ready to <laughs> crack a few skulls yeah exactly throw a cabbage at somebody's head cabbage sure cabbage <laughs> is what i would throw no but i just i can't conceive of the lack of historical knowledge because you know like okay okay andy andy okay we both had very you know normal middle american educations like i'm assuming we know about the trail of tears sure it would be really really ridiculous for you and i to sit there and be like oh well yeah sure like we moved the native americans but like it's really on them for like being there well, and at the same time, I guarantee you there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Americans just around the country who would make some sort of argument of no, it was a it was a resettlement operation, and like those the that land was rightfully purchased, and and it was their fault for fighting and trying to go back on a deal and. Like that is that is absolutely a narrative that is pushed in this country. It's just it is not the major narrative. Yeah. And so then to go to the Armenian genocide where it is the major narrative because it was so successful. Yeah. Yeah, and just I mean, I I I'm not necessarily surprised. I mean, just think about Holocaust denial. Yeah. Which is again like it's a widespread thing that is already in this day and age becoming like so much more of a contentious issue that it needs to be. Mm. But just imagine if one side was the majority of the world and then you've got like 2% of the world trying to say, no, this thing actually happened. That is the comparison we are dealing with in, in metrics here. Um, to protect the cast and crew, no mention of the Armenian genocide like was leaked when the movie was being filmed. It was, oh yeah, it's this pre-World War One romance, love triangle, adventure movie set in Turkey. And the filmmakers and the financiers uh, made sure that like it was not leaked, that they were telling this story solely to protect the cast and crew from mm -hmm. any sort of actual threat. Um, and speaking of the financiers, this movie was exclusively financed by one person and that was uh, Armenian billionaire and former owner of MGM the studio Kirk Akorian uh, okay and um, Kirk Akorian tried to make an Armenian genocide exposal movie in the 80s starring Clark Gable while he was the actual honest to God head of MGM. Uh, is Clark Gable Armenian? No, but I mean, Clark Gable was, you know. Was Clark Gable. Was Clark Gable. Un under fucking standably, I would put Clark Gable in any movie, <laughs> but. Kirk Corian tries to make this film in the 80s when he is literally the head of a major film studio and the movie rights were basically bought out from under him. The Turkish government basically just gave so much money to MGM and was like, the only condition is you don't get to make that fucking movie. <laughs> so as a 90-year-old man, 
free of the obligation of a job and also a like capital B billionaire, he basically said, fuck that. I'm telling my story and privately financed the entire movie. Okay. Behind the curtain, truly a look at our process is that like, I read these things beforehand and I skimmed your notes and I read them and I was like, yes, this is a very good story. What the actual fuck, Andrew? Yeah, exactly. That is so... This is this is a, a world event that is just so entirely hushed up. And it's like, I suppose at this point, it's equal parts shame and racist anger from Turkey, which it, it is important to note is separate from the Ottoman Empire. Mm. Like technically the Ottoman Empire committed this act But then the area of land that the Ottoman Empire turned into, the nation of Turkey, continued to like just go, yeah, no, it didn't, no, it didn't happen that way. No, you don't understand. They were, they were all communists secretly. No, we just relocated them. We were going to send them to Aleppo. No one relocates like by choice. Yeah. Like, I just, I can't. I can't stress this enough, not in all of my understanding of history, not a single people group is like, you know, what's great. Let's completely ruin any prosperity we have here and go elsewhere just for the fuck of it. Right. I mean, you you would have to go back to like the native peoples who crossed the land bridge between russia and canada like you would have to go back that far Mm -hmm. to find somebody who a a, a nation of peoples who voluntarily just like go no there's nothing here we got to go somewhere else well and even then you could argue it's like because of dietary lack of lack of resources because they were moving to canada due to the fact that like LOL, we don't have food here. Right. So we got to move down south where there's still things that move because there's an ice age up there. So, okay. But, like, I'm thinking about, um, for example, the Japanese containment camps in San Francisco in World War II. And it's like, that's still denied to this day. I mean, yeah. To go back to your earlier point about, you know, the Native American genocide, like... We still, as a nation, don't really talk about and teach about and recognize the fucked up shit that we did to Japanese American citizens. Mm-hmm. So, like, just it all boils down to I'm not surprised. I'm just, like, upset to the point of blood boiling, which is why, you know, the, the, the little thing that I knew I could do, I'm not going to go take on, like, the Turkish ambassador or anything, but I made sure that this film was on our list so that eventually we would watch it so that we'd be having this exact conversation and you, dear listeners, would be hearing that conversation. I think that's incredibly admirable and I'm really honored to do this podcast with you. Thank you. You're welcome. And on that lovely note, let's talk about this really depressing movie. Tell me about Constantinople. It can be magical. It can be horrible too. Just like any great city. Were you happy there? 
course, a different life. Absolutely. I mean, this this has such a Oscar feel to it. Oh, yeah. So I'm surprised it didn't win anything. I think we paused at some point in the movie and I turned to you and I said, okay, seriously, this didn't win anything. And the answer is no, because it was so incredibly suppressed. Now, the one thing I will say, and this is kind of a very noble misfire on the filmmaker's attempt. They made the conscious effort to release the promise on what is called the anniversary of the Armenian genocide. Mm. And I absolutely understand the importance of that and the, like the power behind that moment. And this got a, a very big premiere uh, Sylvester Stallone, all of the Kardashians who for anybody who needs a reminder are Armenian American, like, descendants um all the kardashians were at this movie premiere it it got a decent movie premiere but it came out about three months before oscar season Mm. you know the quote unquote i want to say it's november to february or something where like all of the movies that are going to get talked about in the oscars you know they come out in this chunk of time november to january because the show is in right indeed um hey this is why we do this show um but yeah so there's a lot of like speculation that had it come out in the more strategic time frame at the very least it would have been harder to actively suppress Mm. because there would have been so much more oscar buzz about it Instead, they made a a very heartfelt decision that actually seemed to kind of work against them. And I think knowing that one man financed it, knowing that it was such a beautiful passion project, I understand the decision not to make it as Oscar Beatty because there there could be a universe where it's released mid-December for the movie-going Christmas crowd, but that also kind of cheapens it, and the decision not to release it then kind of limits its reach. Yeah, I I can totally see both sides. You know, I will say it feels like they absolutely wanted to pull a lot of Oscar moves. You know, this is a star-studded cast. Christian Bale, Oscar Isaac, Charlotte Lebon, Shoya Agdashlu, who I utterly adore as uh, Oscar Isaac's mother, Marta. Th- this was directed by Terry George, who won an Oscar for writing Hotel Rwanda. Yeah. So this isn't the first kind of time he's told this kind of story. So it's kind of his niche, like... I'm going to tell incredibly sad stories. I'm going to tell incredibly sad stories about, like, the worst things in humanity that nobody ever talks about. Yeah. Which, again, kind of fitting with what we just talked about. Incredibly noble, and that's got away heavy on your heart. Yeah. But this uh, this is an absolutely beautiful movie in every way. It's stunningly shot. The costumes are great. The hair and makeup. We're getting, like... Civil War hair era Christian Bale, which mm. is just mm, so good. So dreamy. His <laughs> handlebar mustache and the way it curves over his lip. And then he's like got this cream colored jacket yep. ensemble. Like the costume designer in me is like, yes, let's talk about all of the clothes. But I don't want to spend time on that. 
what I really want to spend time on is the color thematics in this movie and how the scene taking is so beautiful and how we have in the beginning and the first like half hour I'm thinking the reason I compared it so much to Titanic is the first half hour is incredibly lush incredibly rich there's there's a scene where Mikhail and Anna the two main characters are walking in a garden and like you can almost feel the humidity because it's so drippy and verdant. It's so green and lush. Yes. You're in the, you, you feel like, oh my God, okay, I'm in the Mediterranean coast. Yeah. in the Florida girl in me is like, oh, I can practically hear the cicadas. Yeah. And yet, so we have this beautiful verdancy and then it harshly breaks in a scene where Chris Myers um, rides a horse, then basically takes over a man's car to the desert to see the Armenian people walking through the desert. And it's this harsh break of suddenly there's dust and there's dirt and there's brokenness and there's brittle. And that interplay of like verdancy and brokenness is really heavily relied upon in the movie. Yeah. And there's a few exceptions where you would think it shouldn't be verdant. So for example, Mikhail is promised to a woman who after some time, after the genocide breaks, he comes back, he marries her and they escape away to this cabin in the Armenian mountains. Yeah. And it's lovely, lush. He's Oscar Isaac's character is chopping wood and there's a mist over the mountains and they have really, um, not a lawn, but really tall grass in their front yard and it's very green. And this is a point in the movie where 20 minutes later, his wife is dead, his mom is dead, his dad is dead. Yeah. Or excuse me, his mom is shot. His mom is dying. Dying. Yeah. And yet we have this verdant background of like, you can't kill us. We can't be killed. The Armenian people can't be killed. And in the last scene of the movie, Mikhail's one surviving family member, his baby cousin, grows up, gets married, and he's giving a speech at her wedding. Yeah. And it's in a garden. It's this beautiful Massachusetts, Martha's Vineyard, Mm -hmm. bright, again, just as green as it was before. Mm -hmm. Just as lush, just as humid. All I can think of are juicy words. Sure. And Mikhail has this finishing speech where he says, you know, you can't kill us. At the end of the day, everyone is here. We are Armenian. And everyone's here with us, even in spirit. All of the people who passed, they're still here with us. You can't kill the Armenian people. Yeah. And it's such... I want to say it's subtle, but it's not. It's just undertoned throughout the entire movie of this pulsing theme of life and death. Right. Once you notice it, it's it, it. I don't feel like it overstays its welcome. It's just an incredibly effective way where the movie is telling you how to feel. Yes. When it's green, it is safe and it is okay. And when it is not green, when it dries up and becomes browns and oranges and grays, 
like it just there's a literal transference of safety and what okayness of what is happening right i think even to chris and anna's flat in the city that is their place of like we're safe we're holed up in this beautiful hotel room um it's very green tone so i'm like okay they were obviously trying for a theme yeah and it's incredibly emerald and mint and all of this and so it's like okay this is our safe space but then when anna leaves the flat when chris leaves the flat it's like the outside is very gray there's a lot of stone and that's when we run into the Turkish government running in the streets and right. roaming street gangs, pulling yes. people out of shops and you know, performing a, a crystal knocked esque yeah. attack on the Armenian merchant class people. Correct. My darling Yeva told me that her greatest wish was that her parents and our dear Anna were here. I told her I know that they are um, I want to go back just a second and talk a little bit about uh, Oscar Isaac's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is Angela Serafian, who I recognized from Westworld and, and has mm. a, a big TV career. This is the first time in her acting career that she actually played an Armenian. And she is a native Armenian. Oh, God. So, you know, that kind of goes again into the, like the meta viewing of the Armenian diaspora that mm. like what characters are there that are just in this culture that aren't like purposeful mm. or for a movie like this, mm. you know, it's, it's a, you can watch a movie and a character can be Jewish and it's not like their whole identity. Now, sometimes it is, but it doesn't have to be. Sure. And you don't see the same thing for Armenians, usually. Um, But one thing that I found absolutely hilarious, so Oscar Isaac and Angela Serafian's characters, uh, Mikhail and Marl, are married in the opening scene of the movie. And they were actually married. (laughs) (laughs) What? The filmmakers hired a legitimate Armenian priest who then performed the correct and actual, like, Armenian biblical wedding ceremonial prayer for that scene, which is a blink and you'll miss it scene. Yeah. And then at the end of it, he like grabbed both of them and was like, okay, I have to perform a divorce on you now because you are married in the eyes of God. (laughs) Okay. I know Zaza Gabor had a marriage where she was married for like, I want to say 15 minutes because her husband said something rude on the way to the, Mm. um, what is the word for when you're in between your wedding and your venue reception reception. Thank you. Sorry. That word just flew out of my head, but okay. So Jaja Gabor's briefest marriage was 15 minutes. Mm. I want it on record that Oscar Isaac's shortest marriage was however long that seemed. <laughs> probably a day, probably a couple of hours, depending on how many like shots they got that they didn't wind up using. <laughs> okay, speaking of time of shooting, Andy, this was shot in fewer than three months. Which is nuts, given the scope of it. Given the scope of this movie, it's insane. Like, it is 
filmed in three different countries. Sure. And it's like two and a half. Like you and I divided it. We watched yeah. an hour and then we watched an hour, I think, the next day. Or like an hour and 15 and an hour and 15. Because it's quite a long movie. Yeah. And I, mm, I just imagine those 72 days as an exhausting, emotional, exhausting, mental, exhausting, physical 72 days. Yeah. And I mean... Depending, I doubt they filmed it in chronological order, but if they did, you absolutely see that journey play out over Oscar Isaac's face. Okay, but like Oscar Isaac in the last scene, so dreamy. Oh yeah, so got that dreamy. got that mostly pepper, salt and pepper hair. Yeah. Yeah. No. Very. Very good. Absolutely. Um, speaking of the wedding, makes me make, makes it an appropriate time to mention that there there was a fair call out for this movie in its construction and in the writing of it um, of a little bit of of the time toxic chauvinism. Why, Andy? Whatever do you mean? Well, so you know, Oscar Isaac and Angela Serafian's characters are real life married for a day because the character Mikael wants to go to medical school and they need the dowry to afford that. So first of all, we got the fact that the dowry is a thing. Yeah, sure. The fact that he basically has to have a sit down with his mom the night before and go, I will learn to love her. <laughs> and then the fact how like for, for Marl, it's literally... You may kiss the bride. I love you. Okay, see you in two years. I'm going to Constantinople. I don't think they were actually married, though, because he makes a large point about how... Well, they had... Maybe you're right. I think the marriage takes place later. You're right. Oh, you're totally right. It happens when he comes back six months later, and they're like, oh my god, you're alive. Thank god. Let's hurry up and get you married. Okay, you're right. Yes, because there's a big deal made of the fact he has a talk with his uncle who then disappears for the rest of the movie. But he has a big talk with his uncle about how he loves someone else, but he's engaged to this woman, and he already spent, like, however much of her dowry. And the uncle's like, do you think that I was originally engaged to your aunt? Like... Your aunt and I were totally, like, I was married to a totally different person, and then she died, I think, was the whole monologue. Yeah. And so the uncle is like, I'll pay for you to buy, basically buy yourself out of a dowry, which isn't a great look movie, super isn't, and it's okay, it'll be okay, and then the whole thing is the genocide happens like two days later. Right. And so now he's like, cool, I have to survive and go back to my wife person. Well, and the thing is like, I want to talk about the love rhombus in a second here, but like (laughs) Mikhail Bogosian like commits. He is like, okay, I'm going to marry this person to the point where I was trying to figure out if, the t- t- the titular promise was the promise of the Armenian people to survive or Mikhail's literal promise that I'm going to come back and marry you and learn to love you, which he fulfills to the best of his damn ability. Eh, I mean, probably the first one, but... <laughs> I actually think it's a 
it's the promise he made to his mom mm. that I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back and it'll be okay and we'll be okay. Gotcha. And I'm going to be a doctor and I'll make this work. I'll chase our dreams. Because the first scene is him talking to his mom and he's just like, it'll be okay. I need to do this. I need to go to medical school. It's my passion. And I promise you I'll be back. So it's like the first time in the movie where the word promise is used. Sure. And so... I honestly think the promise is the promise to his mom that everything will be okay, which is incredibly fucking ironic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I just hinted at it. What did you think of the love triangle, love rhombus? The two pairs of love triangles facing opposite directions. (laughs) The love cone. I hated it because I called it. With you, I was like, okay, this is a terribly depressing movie. My money is on. Just the girl dies. Mm-hmm. And I mean the girl, like, I mean the woman. Charlotte, like all the, Charlotte Le Bon, yeah. Well, all the female characters. The wife dies. The girlfriend dies. The mom dies. The Every, aunt dies. The aunt dies. One of the cousins die. The fact that one of the female cousins exists is just a sympathy play for toying with your emotions. Like, I'm well aware this is male Hollywood being like, ah, yes, I am up to my old bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, Christian Bale is alive. He fucking shouldn't be at the end of the movie. Like, he super should have gotten killed. I mean, no lie. I honestly expected him to catch that, like the bullet that you catch in these kinds of movies, like trying to help some poor Armenian person run down the cliff with the uh, tur- the Ottoman soldiers behind him. I fully, I was waiting for that shot of the, uh, where you just, yeah. it's like, oh shit, you're dead now. And yeah, that never came. Instead, you get the horrible, horrible drowning death of our female ingenue lead. And she's, you know, she drowns And the two men who are deeply in love with this woman are on a survival boat. And they're, you know, they're both huddling and, you know, trying to embrace any sense of warmth they have. And then they come to meet each other. And Chris says, where's Anna? And Oscar Isaac's character is just kind of like... Me, sorry, man. Same place every woman, every female person I've ever loved in my life is. That's that's where. That's where she is at the literal bottom of the ocean. Sorry, pal. Yep. I lived in Paris for many years, but I'm a proud Armenian. Mikhail, you make me feel I've come home. <sighs> so that love triangle is like the thing that most people say, like they enjoyed least about the movie and you get like out of the people whose negative reviews I believe are actually real. Mm -hmm. Most of them center on like, it should have been more about the war and the actual historical events and get this fucking love story out of here. I didn't hate it as a device, but I'm a very emotionally driven person. And I also was like, okay, this can only end a tragedy, but I I, like something I, I think is like, I appreciate it because in the in the line between Pearl Harbor, 
which is maybe the most egregious bullshit love triangle war tearjerker thing I've ever seen. And The Pianist, which is the most depressing genocide movie I can think of. <laughs> sure. The Promise is like square in the middle. But where is Schindler's List? I don't think there's a love triangle in Schindler's List. Sure there is. There's Schindler and his list. And Ben Kingsley. Yeah, thank you. I've never actually seen Schindler's List. I mean, Schindler's List is absolutely very close to the pianist in terms of, like, horribly depressing, oh my god, my soul hurts films. That's fair. I actually have seen The Pianist, and I was like, cool, I'm gonna go out in the sunshine. Gonna go sit and think for a while. (laughs) Well, and I'm trying to remember, what did we do right after watching this movie? Did we watch cartoons? Yes. I think we watched Bob's Burgers after watching this movie. Yeah, we we put on cartoons and we we read a, a young adult novel. That's what we did because we love Jeff Setner and yes. his new novel came out and we were like, let's let's get some light in the room. Which for anyone who reads Jeff Setner novels, the fact that we were like, let's turn to Jeff Setner for joy uh. is kind of fucking ironic because all of his books are like really sad yeah we made choices and decisions (laughs) (laughs) but we were on the first 20 pages so it wasn't the sad part yet exactly it was the build to the sad part (laughs) um so yeah i mean this i i think this is an incredibly effective movie it does a lot of things that are kind of very clear plot devices one of them being uh the character of emery who is mikhail's best friend in medical school and serves kind of two purposes. I, I think like he is the most important male character we see actually die. Mm-hmm. Which again, he's like the sixth or seventh most important character we see die, period. The rest of them being all of the top build women in the cast. Mm-hmm. But Emery is this fascinating composite character because he's, you know, the son of a governor or something. He He's effectively like a prince among the people in Constantinople and consistently and purposefully does the morally right thing in the face of all of these atrocities again and again and again gets Mikhail out of being basically forcibly deported for being Armenian. And his dad like gives him a slap on the wrist for it. Tries his best to help Mikhail bribe his dad out of getting firing squatted and fails in that attempt. But his dad basically goes, okay, that was your last chance, dude. No more warnings. And then later when the stakes matter most, when Chris is sitting in prison about to be uh, illegally executed, he, Emery, purposefully gets word to the American ambassador, Henry Morgenthau. And he himself gets firing squatted. Yeah. And serves, I felt, as a poignant and, and tragic and slightly horrifying example of, like, you know, people ask, oh, my God, well, what what, what happens to the good people? Where, where are the good people who stand up in the face of these atrocities when they are part of the system? 
And it's exactly that. They do their best and they are either beaten down to the point of no longer trying to help or in the case where they do the most nobly righteous thing and like consistently try to do the right thing, eventually it's like, okay, well, you're not worth the trouble and now you get to die. It reminds me of um, the hang scene in Jojo Rabbit where all you see is the mom's shoes. Yeah. Because such a big deal is made of her shoes throughout the movie. Like you see shots of her feet several times. So when you see the sh- final shots of her feet, you're like, And that's another, that's another character who does the right thing in the face of German fascism. And it's just like, okay, yeah, this is what happens when the good people are in the overwhelming minority. Yeah. And I think one of the really important parts of this movie in including a love triangle is that it's commenting on at the end of it, we're all humans. We fall in love. We fall in love with people we're not supposed to. We hurt and we bleed. There's this scene where when Oscar Isaac is in, I think, a labor camp. Yeah, yep. He's he's in a work camp. They're they're building a train railroad or something. Mm-hmm. And he's um, talking with people about like their past lives together. And there's one person who says, "Yeah." And he goes through this like series of physical movements yeah. and goes, "In a past life, I was a clown." Yep. I made the children laugh. Which is. Oh, fucking the most, one of the most devastating lines of this movie. Well, I also want to call out that is an actor named Tom Hollander, who I don't see him in a lot of stuff, but everything I've ever seen him in, he just knocks it out of the park. And Tom Hollander gets like three two minute long scenes in this movie and wound up being one of my most favorite characters. In addition to, I'm assuming, James Cromwell. Absolutely. Yeah. James Cromwell comes in for like a day of filming and just knocks it out of the park. I love him. I will always love him. (laughs) He is a delight. He is a badass in this movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, And and I was very happy to see him. I I said in the middle of the watching the movie, it made you laugh. Uh, Jean Reno shows up as the French admiral. And I was like, good for you, Jean Reno, getting a day. I'm very happy at the casting of this movie. And I'm well aware that we could keep talking about this movie for hours and hours and hours, but I think we've covered the main points. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we move on to our closing segments? The only thing I I wanted to bring up, because I don't think this is very obvious at all, the most horrifying moment in the film to me was um, there's a moment where our protagonists come across the caravan of now displaced refugee Armenians. And it's like, wait, what's going on? And and somebody's like, oh yeah, no, they're moving us to Aleppo. And that particular group of people stand and fight and eventually escape on the coast. But specifically the name drop of Aleppo to me was heartbreaking because the implications of somebody in the in our time sitting here thinking just thinking about like okay there was a family who immigrated out of armenia and was forcibly displaced and moved to aleppo and then their grandchildren just had to deal with the syrian like refugee displacement and 
Like, as soon as I heard Aleppo, I was like, oh, shit. Nothing is going to go well for people Anyone. who wind up in Aleppo. Mm. So I just, that, that was a, a, a thing that I think went through my head. And I was just like, oh, I got to talk about this because that's like, just that's horrifying contextually. Yeah. And before we go into the awards and everything, I just wanted to ask you, what was your take on the message of hopeful defiance that Oscar Isaac gives at the end of the film. The 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 beautiful ending speech of, you know, as long as there are two of us, the Armenian people will not be destroyed. I mean, I think that's why one of the themes of the movie is verdancy. Because, like, very clearly there's this plant metaphor of, like, we take root. It does not take a plant person to notice the plant metaphor. Sure. And how, you know, overwhelming in the last scene, there's bouquets on the table, there's palms in the background, it's really rich. And the thing that I keep thinking of is like, at the end of the day, we're going to be here, we're going to stay rooted. And I think that's very similar to like, given how much this is a director's pet project, that ending monologue makes a lot of sense. And normally in a less heartfelt film, that moment would be cheesy or overwrought. But in this moment, it's really beautiful and really well meant. And I actually really, really enjoyed it because it was a slight message of hope. And to follow that up with the thing that a lot of historical dramas do of the actual facts of the Armenian genocide, this many people died. This was what was recognized. This was what wasn't. Here are some actual pictures taken mm-hmm. in real life. Yeah. To follow that up with this was so overwhelmingly emotional and hard-hitting. And that's the reason I feel like we do this. Like, that's why you wanted to include this movie on the list. That's why we're sitting here and having this conversation is because, like, so much of this is not known. I had no idea about this beforehand. And this is heartbreaking and hard. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. I I think I felt very much the same way. It's it's kind of a beautiful middle finger (laughs) raised to oppression everywhere and especially and specifically in this case oppression to the ottoman empire and the turkish government um this idea of like you cannot destroy our culture all you have done is made every living armenian so much more purposeful in the proliferation and survival of our race. Yeah. Of our culture, of our people, of our tradition, of our stories. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, that's why there was a human connection with a romance story, because it's like, at the end of the day, we're people. We're going to fuck up. We're going to make bad decisions. We're going to be human. And our stories are worth telling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we mentioned that, um, you know, The Promise missed Oscar season and was kind of sabotaged from any real award acclaim. 
Um, you know, we talk about how every film we watch on Cult Fiction deserves an Oscar, and sometimes that's tongue-in-cheek when it's a real piece of crap like Toxic Avenger. In this case, I, I say it with a little bit more uh, of, of a purpose. This film deserved awards and praise, and so we give Oscars on every movie, and I would like to know what you have for The Promise. For The Promise, I have the Oscar of Best Real Life Callout. Um, the scene between the American ambassador and the Turkish interior minister is taken literally word for word from the ambassador's memoirs. Right. So this movie really said, no, fuck you. We want to illustrate just how terrible of a person you are. And we're going to put it etched on every single silver screen that we can access. Right, and and to just complete context for that point, that's uh, that's James Cromwell mm-hmm. playing American Ambassador Henry Morgenthau, and literally the scene is uh, the Turkish Interior Minister saying, "Oh, oh, by the way, I really wish that you could get um, your American life insurance companies to send us the names of all your Armenian policyholders." Other beneficiaries are dead, so that money's going to go to us now. So if you could get on that. And James Cromwell, Henry Morgenthau just gives the deadliest fuck you stare I've ever seen and says, I will never release those names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so absolutely brilliant Oscar. Kind of in the same way, uh, I have the Oscar of best real life fuck you given to Kirk Corian. Again, for privately financing a film just so he could make sure that the message was not uh, tainted and erased by the Turkish government. Um, and, and he was a, a 90-year-old billionaire when he started the project. He never uh, got to see this film. He died uh, a few years, or not a few years, but a few months before it came out. And there, that's that's tragic, but there is such a like power to the as my dying act, I'm going to make sure my message gets told, and I, I really love that. Um, and I, I think for maybe the first time or first or second time, I, I'm awarding a special third joint Oscar from Stephanie and I to Oscar Isaac's absolute dump truck of an ass. <laughs> Uh, I didn't, so we, I was writing my notes and I was like, I don't want to, this feels so sacrificial, because I had said while we were watching this movie, like, that's my Oscar, it's going to be Oscar Isaac's well, I, ass. I, 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 I am not ashamed to admit, I paused the movie and said, you need to look at what that man is carrying in the back of his pants right now. <laughs> um, no shame, I do love how, like, both of us were just like... How heads tilted to the side, staring at the pause screen because I'm, I'm sorry, that thing is unreal. It is an inappropriately phenomenal ass, and I I don't know if the pants had something to do with it, but like yeah, in an hour and a half into this horribly depressing movie, in a moment where not necessarily like I should be thirsting for Oscar Isaac. I find myself thirsting for Oscar Isaac and the, like, complete shelf he's got in his trousers. You're not alone. Also, all of America thirsts for Oscar. He's so... He's He's so so pretty. pretty. He's just so... (laughs) Speaking of 
humans who are so pretty. We need to talk about how this movie connects to Kevin Bacon. Absolutely we do. I'll let you go first. All right, yeah, thank you so much. Um, I was able to connect this movie to Kevin Bacon in two. I mentioned Jean Renault got a day of filming for this, and good for Jean Renault. Jean Renault, uh, probably best known for The Professional, which is on the list, and we will see at some point, um, that he was in with Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman was in Murder in the First with Kevin Bacon. Mm-hmm. Now, what? the fuck movie did James Cromwell do? Because I read your notes, but I, I couldn't figure it out. James Cromwell was in Beyond All Boundaries mm. with Kevin Bacon. Well, I concede my defeat. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't, as always, this came from Alexander. This did not come from me. Well, I concede my defeat to Alexander, I suppose. I mean, as per usual, all of us concede our, de- our defeat to Alexander. <sighs> well, there's one force that I know Alexander would put up a fight against him at least. And that is if he had to watch all of the movies in the Hollywood crib. <laughs> I was like, where are you going with this, friend? Which technically, as long as you're willing to stick with this project with me, we will eventually do. So every episode of Cult Fiction, we uh, we ask the Hollywood crypt for a suggestion of the next movie we're going to watch. A suggestion? A mandate. There we go. <laughs> we get that mandate through a random number generator run through the 291 films that we still have on the list. And next time, we'll be watching number 14. Is it Anaconda? It's not Anaconda. It is a movie that is going to be familiar in in one way and absolutely not in every other way. Okay. Next time on Cult Fiction, we will be watching the 2012 sci-fi comedy about moon Nazis, Iron Sky. What? This movie has fascists, just like The Promise, and that is where the similarities end. I'm sorry. Moon Nazis. Nazis who live on the moon and have lived on the moon since World War II and have created their own Nazi moon culture and then try to invade modern day Earth. You are so lucky you're my best friend. Well... Unfortunately, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also rate and review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time as Stephanie and I avoid Aryan alteration surgery as we endure Timu Veronisola's Iron Sky. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Boel. I'm mad at you. You, yeah, this one you kind of deserve to be.
not to give away a spoiler, but they take an African-American astronaut and they surgically make him an Aryan. 